welcome to The Last American Vagabond. I have a great show today, and I'm really excited to have on Dr. David Martin to discuss a recent presentation that he had regarding the WHO, which you all saw we covered how important this was, in my opinion, the criminal organization, as he called it, and, and how far this goes back. So I invited him on today to discuss this really important presentation, but also previous work he's done that's also very important, not just in the COVID-19 conversation, but specifically around the patents and how, how it led to where we are today. Also, some other discussions towards the end to kind of get his take on some other things I find are very important to the larger conversation. So, uh, Dr. Martin, how are you today? Thanks for joining me. Super grateful to be here, and thank you for having me on. Pardon, excuse me for that. <laughs> That's great to have you. That's yeah, right. I, 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 fi- no I find your, uh, your, your overall take on this to be very refreshing, and I don't even mean, I, I, I do mean the information you're presenting, but just the, the kind of objective, nonpartisan, very critical way you cover these things, I really find very, very powerful and important, which is why you got so much attention and still do around this topic. So I, I'd like to start today with that, that presentation and kind of go backward yeah. from there in regard to the WHO and, and, and why that's so important. And as, as people know, the WHO pandemic treaty and the amendments coming up. So go ahead and start where yeah. you'd like and, and why that's so important to the larger picture. Yeah, well, listen, I mean, the WHO, as I articulated in that presentation, has a background which is ironically criminal in its origins. Um, and, and I find it fascinating that we somehow as as reasonable citizens are overwhelmed when we find out that criminals do criminal things. I mean, it's kind of one of those self-evident, a bit self-fulfilling prophecies. And so I find it fascinating that we have a world in which the unconsidered nature of a non-governmental organization that has no elected accountability, has no appointed accountability, has no citizen representation whatsoever, is somehow capable of granting itself extraterritorial and extrajudicial rights that no other institution on earth would be allowed to grant, much less recognized for its granting. And so let's unpack exactly the point. The point is that the World Health Organization grants its affiliates absolute criminal, civil, and economic immunity from all, not some, from all of their actions, as long as those actions are undertaken under the auspices of the WHO. In other words, there is an extrajudicial, extraterritorial, extra-sovereign condition granted that exceeds that of diplomatic immunity. It exceeds that of any other jurisdiction where a group of people in the 1940s decided to make a set of rules that only apply to them. They can kill, they can maim, they can bribe, they can be corrupt, they can financially get into all kinds of malfeasance, they can money launder, they can, they can serve as an illegal organization for the promotion of their economic interests. And by the definition in their charter, they are immune from prosecution, absolutely. And my view is really simple. There is no human institution on the planet, and I mean none, that should be afforded absolute immunity. Um, The fact of the matter is that since 1604 and since the corporations acts that actually grew out of the Dutch and the British realms in the, the very early parts of the 17th century, the idea that we were going to allow corporations to act as individuals and thereby shield individuals from liability is is the first step down the slippery slope. But by the time we get to 1947, that by the time we get to the establishment 
of the non-governmental organizations inside of the UN affiliated programs, you have these, these unbelievable tyrannical impulses that say, we are going to pass a set of rules. We are going to make sure that no rules apply to us other than the ones we make. And my point was simple in the presentation in the parliament. The entirety of the COVID narrative was a premeditated genocidal program of racketeering co-conspirators who were violating federal statutes in the United States, clearly violating competitive laws in Europe. And they were doing so with impunity. And they were doing so under the protection of even a dotted line into the World Health Organization, which is the World Health Organization's Global Preparedness Monitoring Board, which is a very clear violation of the Clayton Act in the United States and unambiguously creates a criminal collusion network, which is open and shut racketeering on both sides of the Atlantic. That very well summed up right there. I'd, I definitely want to get into some nuanced parts of that through your presentation. And, and so the, the obvious first question for the average viewer that hasn't heard any of this would be like, how, how do you know all these things? And we'll go through some of the information yeah. you present. Before we get there, though, just the first thing that jumps into my head in that main point about removing themselves from any kind of legal liability or, or uh, uh, persecution or uh, prosecution is briefly touch on how that's even possible and what that would then mean when this new pandemic treaty comes into effect and suddenly they can circumvent our sovereignty. If they can't be legally accountable, how does that even make sense? I mean, obviously it's a corrupt organization, but for the average person, explain that to them. How could that can possibly take place? Well, it's in the founding charter. The reason why it can take place is it is the law in the founding charter. That's why it can take place. Now we can sit here today and and wish ourselves into a time machine and go back to 1947 and go, what the hell were people thinking when they signed off on those agreements? But we have to put that in context of something else. Most people don't realize that in 1944 at Bretton Woods, a group of a very small group, by the way, one could argue that it was less than 10 people, um, essentially built the roadmap for taking over the world. And they did it at Bretton Woods. They did it across the summer of 1944. And during that period of time, things like multilateral agencies at the time, what became the IMF and the World Bank at the time, what became GATT, which is now the World Trade Organization, what at the time was um, the International Monetary Fund, and ultimately at the time was a number of other kind of financial collusion entities um, in 1944. And remember, this is prior to the end of the war. The idea was that there would be a new world order if the allies won. And if the allies won, the world trade would be denominated on the U.S. dollar, which if you think of how ludicrous that was, remember that the U.S. dollar hadn't even survived its first 30 year turn of treasuries. It had gone through the Great Depression in 1929. It had gone through the great socialization of Roosevelt in the 1930s. It had become the basis for things like Social Security, Medicare, and Medicaid. So all of a sudden, we're saying that the dollar is going to be hegemonic. No rules are going to apply to the people who make the rules. And that's the basis upon which um, in Section far, uh, in the founding documents of the world uh, of the United Nations, it started off League of Nations, became the United Nations. We have this bizarre provision that says that anybody who is in a U.N. affiliated organization while doing the work of that U.N. affiliated organization has no 
not only liability, they're not even allowed to be prosecuted. So so this is an exemption that goes beyond you're just not going to get found guilty. You're not even allowed to be asked whether you potentially did commit a crime because that's not legal either. And and so if you go back and you look, and that's why in the presentation, as you know, I went ahead and put up the actual language from the charter because, you know, people sit there going, oh, that must be hyperbolic. No, it's actually written black and white in the charter. You can't unsee it when you see it. And and this is a this is a problem because as we've encountered throughout the entirety of what we call the pandemic, the ignorance of the public around the foundations upon which these kinds of tyrannical acts can be built is so complete that people sit there going, well, clearly the Constitution protects us. Clearly, you know, laws protect us. Clearly, the courts protect us. And the answer is no unambiguously, not only they do not protect us, but worse, we live in a world where the criminals wrote the law to say the crime for them is legal. That's an interesting overlap. So you don't think that the Constitution, or rather just the ideas, the inherent God-given rights enshrined in that, wouldn't be something that people could lean into in, in order no. to kind of push back. That's no, no, that's the problem. That's the problem with extraterritorial jurisdictions. Mm-hmm. You know, we don't have a court around which a UN charge can be brought. Mm-hmm. And that's and that's deliberate. You would argue based on the way all these well, things not, were brought. I wouldn't argue it. They wrote it into their mm-hmm. charter. So yeah, I mean, it, it's kind of one of those unambiguous, explicit things. They wrote themselves out of the law. They have a domicile that gives them the ability in Switzerland and in New York to conduct activities that are not bound by any law. And giant surprise, if you were, I don't know, I don't know, intending to be somewhat criminal in your acts, is there any chance you might look for a place where you can do that, where there is no ability to be prosecuted ever? Right. Seems pretty logical to me. If I was running, I don't know, criminal organization, I think that'd be a pretty doggone sweet deal. Yeah, most definitely. I mean, I, the the outlines and your presentation, I recommend, is is you know really compelling. It shows you that this is something that is deliberate. I mean, I think that's the really important part for the average yeah. person to recognize. I'll, I'll include this as well as just the, the tweet version that I shared of this presentation. But let, let's talk about this a little bit more in depth. I'll include your your yeah, screenshot you, you jump of those to that as well. last slide. Jump to the last slide, and you'll actually see the provision right there. Um, uh, not, not not that far back, but there's one where I actually have the highlight of the section. Um, it might be up there. It is down in the bottom mm-hmm. right hand corner. Um, you can actually see the actual provision which says in Article 5, Section 13, it ends that it, with a very simple statement that says they can commit a crime and they cannot be held liable for that crime in any jurisdiction, in any fashion, in every manner. So what is the logic to that? Not that there needs to be, but I mean, the like for people, as you point out in the presentation, people discuss diplomatic immunity, and obviously this goes way beyond that. But even yeah. then, which I, I could make a thousand arguments for why diplomatic immunity is ridiculous, but why? What's the logic they would prevent present to to make that case in your mind? Well, the logic 
with respect to the way in which multilateral agencies hide behind this diaphanous fig leaf of what they think of as morality is they go, well, if we were, I don't know, doing a project, let's say, on women's fertility in a country where there is Sharia law or there is a Catholic um, regime that is in power, you know, we don't want to say we're doing a thing in an interest of health, having a local domicile tell you that, you know, for whatever reason, it's inappropriate. And and so, you know, you you are somehow an agent of you know, disruption to the civil order in a place. And so the whole purpose of diplomatic immunity is exactly that. You, you cannot simply by creating a theoretical offense be guilty of a crime. That's kind of the principle of diplomatic immunity. But this goes way further than that. It says that any act that they do, by the way, any act, it does not say an act aligned to their activities, which is what mm-hmm. diplomatic immunity does. Remember, you can be technically, and I learned this, by the way, in a very tragic way. In the 1970s, I had a very dear friend very early. One of my first friends in life was murdered by the son of a Korean diplomat. And I was shocked to find out that he was not prosecuted for murder. He was sent home to Korea for murdering my friend. Now, so, so this... You know, I can I can grant to anybody listening to this that I might have a little bit of vested interest in my personal, you know, just absolute revulsion with the principle. Mm -hmm. But but I do understand that the reason why we do it is because we want diplomats to actually be able to conduct their lives in a way where they serve the country's interest. And if they step inadvertently on a law or a policy or anything else, they can't be held criminally liable for doing an act of commission, which may not be aligned to how they usually comport themselves. Right. You might you might not have a head covering on and you might be in an Islamic country where you should have had a head covering on. Right. There's a thousand reasons why it's a good idea to have diplomatic community. But that is nowhere close to the justification of saying that every single act done by an entity, regardless of whether it is aligned to its mission or not, is shielded absolutely from criminal prosecution. And it says of every kind. And, yeah. and that's just a bridge too far. So, so right. the, the principle is not a ethical principle. It's not a moral principle. It's a criminal principle written by criminals for criminals. Yeah, and and an interesting part of this is, and I was recently discussing this about both the UN and WHO, is largely historically have at least been presented as more more administrative bodies, right? Where it's interesting that you can even argue they would need that if they're not being necessarily deployed in ways that that might come up. I mean, there are overlaps, but yeah, I think your point is very important there. And I think this shows a willingness. Yeah, I mean, listen, I, I, I will, I will, I will show my cards one more step. I mean, I have not been a fan of the UN for a long time. It coincident with my birth. So this goes back 56 years. The United Nations, in its infinite wisdom, decided to give extraterritorial rights to a company called Bougainville Copper Limited, which was the largest copper deposit in the world at the time. 
And they decided to give it to Australia, not just any part of Australia, to Queensland, Australia, for the inconvenience of administering the natives during the Second World War. No shit. That's the reason why they gave Australia the world's largest copper mine in a country that at the time hadn't yet been formed called the Independent State of Papua New Guinea. Hmm. When the Constitution of Papua New Guinea was drafted, the Bougainville copper mine was written out of the constitution. They literally wrote the national constitution and carved the mining interest out. So there was no law governing the mining operation at all. And lo and behold, I know this is going to come as a giant surprise. If you're mining copper and gold out of a place where there is no law, are you ready for this? Lawlessness happens. And then giant shock to everybody between 1970 and 1980, people started going, holy shit, this feels like we've been bamboozled. And they stood up for their rights, at which point in time, mercenary armies were brought in, leading to the 20,000 person genocide, killing half the population of the island. And guess what? Zero accountability. You know why? Because the U.N. administration said that there was no law to apply. So this is a case, by the way, that in California was found to be one of the modern cases of actual genocide found as such by a court of competent jurisdiction. And guess what? Because of this very practice, that this was a UN-affiliated decision, no person was held accountable for the deaths of 20,000 local inhabitants of Bougainville. So do I care about this issue? Absolutely. I was the one that actually was brought in to help negotiate the ceasefire of the civil war created by the UN's peacekeeping mission. So there's an outside chance that I have nothing but contempt for an organization that set itself up as a criminal conspiring organization to do crimes. And then lo and behold, they do the crimes that they told you they were going to commit. Wow. I mean, that's a really stark example right there. Just blatant criminality presented as helping people, which is kind of the, the, the message that we're always talking about on the show in regard to foreign policy of these governments. Right. Now, I, I, I seriously could talk about just this part for the next two hours with you, but I, I know we have limited, <laughs> seriously, but I mean, we have limited time. So I would like to talk about the, the fl- more fleshing out of, of your presentation. You mentioned yeah. something in there in regard to, and, and this steps into the idea of, what this really was and there's a lot of questions we could get into or what it wasn't you say the tur- you say quote to adapt the behavior of a population and that Correct. no pandemic exists so flesh that out for me yeah so listen we 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 desperately needed um the anthrax poisoning in 2001 to get us to accept the prep act and the prep act only had one purpose it had the purpose of creating a mechanism for pharmaceutical companies to get product liability shields for what was called medical countermeasures. The only reason we have the PREP Act is that the National Childhood Vaccine Injury Act of 1986 protected manufacturers from the scheduled injections given to children, but it did not protect any injections given to adults. And the PREP Act, under the guise of what we call medical countermeasures, is the mechanism whereby we create the same liability protections for manufacturers for adult injections. And that's why we had anthrax. That's why we had the need for the Defense Department of the United States to release anthrax after it manufactured anthrax so that the public would accept the need for medical countermeasures. And that's been a publicly stated objective. That's not my words. That's a publicly stated objective. We need to create a hyped event 
so that the public accepts the need for a thing. Mm -hmm. Now, fast forward to this whole nonsense around what we call the coronavirus scare of 2019. The fact of the matter is, as Anthony Fauci and as all of his funding colleagues said repeatedly in the years leading up to 2019, the funding for medical countermeasures was inadequate. Congress was not giving people enough money. And so there was, in their words, a crisis. In 2015, they made it abundantly clear that that crisis had created the need for an event horizon where they specifically referenced a pan-coronavirus vaccine. Now, what makes that most problematic in 2014 when it was stated and in 2015 when it was published is the fact that at the time, the World Health Organization, and that's right, the same organization that wants to have absolute control of all humanity, that organization had declared coronavirus a, a fully eradicated disease. So why on earth would we need a injection for a disease that had been declared eradicated? And the answer is because they already knew that they were making a releasable biological weapon derived from the model of coronavirus, which happened to be in production at the University of North Carolina, Chapel Hill, funded by Ralph Baer, uh, funded by Anthony Fauci's NIAID, funded by DARPA. They already knew it was in the works. So the reason why that statement in 2015 published in the Proceedings of the National Academy of Sciences is so vital is that they already were announcing, not that they thought that maybe one day we'd need to do a thing, they already had the thing that they wanted to distribute. But just like we said, and by the way, go back and look at 2017, 2018, and 2019, the three years preceding the pandemic, and look at Anthony Fauci's testimonies to Congress. Mm -hmm. He was trying desperately to get Congress to force a law into action which would make every person have to take an influenza shot. Right. And in 2018 and 2019, he changed that to become, are you ready for this? A universal infant influenza mandate. Now, I don't know if you've had kids. I've had the pr pleasure of raising three beautiful children. I now have a couple of grandchildren. What I know is that every now and then they get the sniffles they get a cold, they get a fever. And what I do is I take care of them and then they get better. Mm -hmm. And that's what we call the immunity of the body doing its work, which is how it learns how to exist in this ecosystem. The reason why they didn't need a universal influenza injection is because they don't need one. And that's the reason why the uptake for this was relatively limited. In fact, if we go back and look, less than 11% of the people were getting any influenza shots whatsoever. And that pissed off Anthony Fauci in the worst way possible. So in 2018 and in the spring of 2019, at the NIAID steering committee meetings, the plan was how on earth do we create an event horizon that makes the public accept a universal influenza shot? And the reason why this is so critical and people need to understand what I'm saying is, do you realize that in the last now 18 months, have you heard the term multivalent or bivalent shot? Mm -hmm. We're already past COVID here, people. Right. We, we are now being delivered the universal influenza shot that we were told 
we all needed to take in 2017, 2018, 2019, and we didn't take. Under the guise of what we called COVID, we got people addicted to the mRNA shot template. And lo and behold, we're now back to, oh, that's right, mandatory influenza vaccine, which was what the problem was that they said they were solving with the whole pandemic. I want to, that, that's a really important part for the average person to make sure you understand not, and, and not, o- not only just the overlaps with all the different groups involved, DARPA and so on, but the idea that this is a long sought, this, this is a, a discussion we've had many times on this show, as you write here, a key driver in the media and the economic, the, the uh, economics follow the hype. So in that statement, it's not hard to see that this is not about, you know, just that it's the right thing to do, but that they need to hype it to create the artificial demand even if they may argue in their minds that it's some kind of a greater good. But yeah, but but then look at the last line. I mean, the last line is the indictment. Mm -hmm. Investors will respond if they see profit at the end of the process. Last time I checked, that's not the mandate of public health. Right. The mandate of public health is not to enrich a few investors where a hundred billion dollars of public dollars get given to a single company, which in its history never had gotten a hundred billion dollars from anybody ever. And now all of a sudden, investors will respond if they see profit at the end of the process. No kidding. Have you have you seen this, by the way? Um, this is a document I've covered a few times from it's it's a it's a uh, basically request for correction from the Kenneth Stoller, the International Hyperbaric Medical Association. And exactly what you're outlining. He just happens yeah. to point out the, the conflation of flu and pneumonia, which happened yeah. during COVID, as you know. But he lists off the National Influenza Vaccine Summit right here and how they literally right. discussed Go, yeah, I just for the for the audience just to simply see that they're talking about how to boost demand for the vaccine and, and you know really the point being even though there's no real issue and on oh. the record right and so I just want yeah. people to see that's not just your opinion they openly stated these things no and I think that's one of the things that's been slightly frustrating across the last several years for me is you know I started briefing the the what what was the weaponization of the model derived from coronavirus in 2002 my first publication in Biological Weapons and Toxins, which was a classified publication that we made for a number of, of law enforcement agencies, mm. was actually published in, in 2003. That copy, um, there are some circulating copies of that, that one. Um, but, but I've been doing this now for 20 years. And, and what, one of the things I find frustrating is people pretend like there's this whodunit kind of gumshoes sleuthing required to go through and find all the stuff that's the evidence. Um, it doesn't actually take any creativity or effort. This thing was done in plain sight. It was engineered in plain sight. It was publicly announced. Um, By 2016, we even knew that it was the Wuhan variant that was the one that they had chosen. Um, Like, there's nothing left to the imagination. We knew that it was WIV1 poised for human emergence, right? This is not a I wonder if it could be a bat and a pangolin going into a bar in Wuhan one night and getting it on and boom, out comes baby COVID. No, we knew in 2016 that the Wuhan Institute of Virology Virus 1 model was the one that they had selected for the weapon. And so, you know, you sit back and you, you say, well, how is it that in the face of such egregiously public information, we still are asking questions about motivation, about whether this was from nature or whatever it is. Listen, people, they said in their own words, this was to hype a drug to get the public to accept something that without terror, the public would have never agreed to. 
That's their words, not mine. Mm -hmm. And when you have a world in which, as you have on the screen right now, they actually stated outright biohacking, synthetic coronaviruses, biological warfare enabling technologies. You know, you don't have to interpret that. That doesn't require some spin. When you say biological warfare enabling technology, you are not talking about something that is an innocent oops, who could have known, who could have seen. It is actually a declaration of war against humanity, and we have it in black and white. Yeah, this is a really interesting one that my audience has seen me cover this document more than once. I actually hadn't seen that until I watched your presentation. It kind of blew, fell, almost fell out of my chair because the, this point is very important in a general sense, just for those that haven't seen this, his curriculum for Ralph Barrick. I've been pointing out over, over, I don't know, the past so many, about a year or so, that they discuss in here coronavirus-induced myocarditis in rabbits yep. throughout the 90s. But to see this, so actually talk about this in particular for me, what, what, how important this is, both the inclusion of DARPA, but also just that it's that one of his discussion points that he was invited to speak about synthetic coronaviruses and a biological warfare enabling tech and why that's so important. Yeah, well, this is important because of the timing that it came out. Remember, this is contemporaneous with the passage of the PrEP Act. And it is after we've just recovered from the anthrax alleged terrorist attack, which turned out to be nothing more than the U.S. government releasing anthrax on the population of the United States. Um, what makes this really problematic is that if we looked at things like DARPA's pandemic plan, pandemic preparedness um, program, the triple P program, mm -hmm. um, and sorry about that screw up. I didn't mean to say pandemics, but they were. But let's you know, let's let's recognize that maybe that was just a human failing on my part there. Little Freudian slip. But, but if you look at the P3 program at DARPA, they're very careful, by the way, even though they're doing biological weapons research, they're very careful to call it pandemic preparedness. They're, they're talking about medical countermeasures. They're talking about how and where we go to find ways to rapidly treat and develop 90-day or sub-90-day interventions and stuff like that. So, so even in their cover story, they're careful. This one was reckless. You don't call it biological warfare enabling technology if you don't mean it is a warfare enabling technology. And you wouldn't call it synthetic coronaviruses. And you wouldn't have the guy who inside of that presentation, there is no reference in any public document to the disclosure of his then pending patent application which would have been a conflict of interest that would have been required under federal rules to be stated. But because the patent had not yet been granted, the patent he filed in 2002 on the infectious replication defective clones of coronavirus, which for the people who are listening, want, they should actually unpack what is replication defective, mm -hmm. but infectious. What does that mean? That means that you're taking the viral definition out of the virus. You're actually making the packet delivery system enabled by a protein shell something that you can carry any toxic agent into the cell using the technology of a protein shell derived from the coronavirus model. So newsflash, the guy who's saying he's got a biological warfare enabling technology is also the guy who's patented the same thing. Mm-hmm. That shouldn't come as a total surprise, and it shouldn't come as a surprise that the person you would actually give then unrestricted 
multi-year grants in Defense Department grants, which were not competitively granted. These were grants that were allocated to Ralph Barrick and the University of North Carolina Chapel Hill. You wouldn't start giving him money from the Department of Defense for, I don't know, biological warfare enabling technologies if you didn't want to develop. Are you ready for this? Biological warfare enabling technologies. Right. This whole business that somehow or another they didn't mean exactly the words they said is is so ludicrous in any court that would not hold up in any public opinion that would hold up. And the only reason why we actually still have public opinion swayable is because the public is not informed. And by now the uninformed public is willfully uninformed because the information is out there. Right. Yeah. And I mean, I get why people have a hard time digesting this because it kind of shatters their worldview. But you're right. It's right out in front of them. And I think it's important to mention the the kind of dual use aspect you described there, which is the whole lipid nanoparticle mRNA yep. platform. And it's really important for people to see that this overlaps and has been going on a lot longer than this. And we've talked about Robert Langer, co-founder yep. of Moderna, Robert yep. Robert. Uh, Robert Charles Lieber, excuse me, and all these different overlaps to the tech, which are now being utilized going forward. I even recently pointed out the overlap to that very same kind of gene silencing RNA interference tech that's overlapped with the GM mosquitoes and the right. flying vaccinators. I mean, it, it's, yeah, it's I saw that on your I saw that on your page just today. Yeah, it's 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 yeah. alarming because yeah. people. That's the one of the easiest examples people to see that it's. I mean, even going back to the insect allies conversation, scientists around the world called it a dual use bioweapon Correct. program. And that's Correct. what they're utilizing here. Correct. And so that's the point was for people to connect it. So if Ralph Barrick is giving discussions on that exact technology and it's described as exactly what you just said, I mean, it's not hard to piece these things together. That's what you're saying. It's very right. Simple. And, and, right and listen, I mean, I, I have said many times that the frustration I have right now is that what we're supposed to do is we're supposed to walk up to a bank. We see a guy with a mask and a gun holding a bag and we're supposed to ask him about economic theory. Right. I mean, that's how ludicrous this whole conversation is. Let's right. just stop for a moment and go. The economic theory of a robber is there was money in the bank with a little bit of persuasion, a couple of bullets and a face mask. The money's now out of the bank and it's now in my possession. Now, why did he rob the bank? Well, that's because that's where the money was. That's why he robbed the bank. Right. Why is why is he the person we're asking about motivations for economic theory? Don't ask a bank robber. The, the economic theory is really easy. It's kind of an osmosis theory. There's a concentration of money in the bank. He goes into the bank and he takes some out of the bank. That's it. Done. We're done with that. And the same logic needs to be applied here. We were told it was a biological weapon in 2005. We were funding a biological weapons program. We actually had this the University of North Carolina Chapel Hill impanel not one but two institutional review boards to review the illegality of the research that they were doing on the biological weapons program. That's, by the way, in the 2016 proceedings of the National Academy of Sciences paper. And it turns out that all of this is published. We don't have to infer anything. This is not stitching a story of improbabilities together. This is the same criminals doing the same criminal activity with the same stated intent since the foundation of Anthony Fauci's hegemony over NIAID, which started in 1984. Right. And, and, and the whole point of your presentation, or rather the culminating point, is that we should not just try to 
there's no purpose in trying to fix this or taking your analogy, trying to convince the robber that they shouldn't be a robber. These people are criminals. So yeah. we need to get rid of the institution. You know, and yeah. I, I agree with that. I think it's something that is it's corrupt to its core. And as you pointed out, from its origin. And so obviously this is something we need to get away from. Well, and this is this is a great point, right? You know, I, I talk about this in personal relationships, right? If if the foundation stone that's cut is wrong, mm-hmm. then I don't care how much you try to gloss over it. I, I don't care how much you try to build around it. You try to justify, you try to accommodate it. If the foundation is rotten, it's rotten. You can't fix the World Health Organization. It was chartered to be an illegal organization. It was selected to serve a purpose that was largely at the time dictated by the Rockefeller Foundation and the Wellcome Trust. They were the two check writers that actually were doing it. Go back and look at their motivations. What was the motivation for them to set this up? And if you are dumb enough to think that they cared about whether your baby had sniffles, you are delusional. Mm-hmm. They cared about the ability to make the pharmaceutical industrial complex have absolute protection from a tyrannical rollout of a industrial pharmaceutical allopathic medical model. And they wanted to make sure it was protected. Absolutely. So guess what? Learning from the 1920s, learning for how the mafia screwed it up because they actually didn't actually do their taxes right. These guys did one step better than the mafia ever could have contemplated. They wrote their own jurisdiction. They wrote their own set of laws. And then they said, we can never be held accountable. Exactly. Yeah. And I think that's very clear. And I think your presentation makes that very clear. So let's let's stop. Let's talk about the idea of what we're actually dealing with here. Right. And so you've made the points many times that, that this is not. I mean, actually, you tell me. So I, I've discussed th- things like this with Denny Rancor, who yeah. makes the argument that ultimately he's not saying that the viruses aren't real or that there might not be something, but that ultimately the data proves that you didn't really need anything. You, conflation of other illnesses that, you know, the using later vaccine side effects and conflation and so on. So where do you place this? Is there something going on? Is it an illusion? Is there no virus? Are there any viruses in general? Go ahead and give me your thoughts. Yeah. So listen, um, there are there are toxins in the environment. There are a whole bunch of toxins in the environment. Some of them the environment makes a lot of them humans make. The the worst toxins that we know about are when natural toxins are amplified by humans. That is a bad idea. And and we have to understand that in this particular case, there is no evidence whatsoever of transmission of a thing. There is evidence of distribution of a thing. And those are two fundamentally different concepts. Transmission would suggest that you and I could be sitting together next to each other on a train and somehow or another, whatever you have, I get. And the fact of the matter is there is a very problematic element with respect to how we invented what we called COVID-19. Because remember, COVID-19 never constituted a biological definition. COVID-19 was a set of symptoms. Those symptoms are indiscriminate to a number of reactions to a number of organic and inorganic toxins. And so this idea that somehow or another you could catch COVID-19, well, no, you you couldn't catch COVID-19 any more than you could catch the Easter bunny or a leprechaun. 
It doesn't and that, exist. And that's unique to COVID-19 in your mind or just in a general point? Well, to- I think that there are a lot of times when you can have populations where a particular disorder emerges. So, for example, I've lived in Papua New Guinea at length, and I know that there are a number of places in Papua New Guinea where malaria is endemic. Now, does it mean that you caught it from another person? Well, if by virtue of the transmission of a plasmodium through the carrier called a mosquito, one plasmodium moves from one person to another one, we could say that there's transmission because that is in fact an, a, an evidence-borne piece of information. You didn't have it, you got bit, you now have it. That's an objective reality. And there are people who sit there and go, well, yeah, but is it causal? Well, not necessarily, because I can guarantee you that in the places I've lived, I've lived around the world in every continent, and I have lived with people of all various you know, socioeconomic and living conditions and everything else. I guarantee you I've been bitten by a malaria-bearing mosquito. And guess what? I don't have malaria. Mm-hmm. And here's where the whole conversation falls apart. We are trapped in this nonsensical world of causality. And most people don't understand that when Gottfried Liebens invented the modern concept of causality, um, he was doing so to try to come up with a what he called a mathematical disputation of God. Now, most people don't know the background of Gottfried Liebens. They don't know that he was actually trying to evade religious persecution because Mm -hmm. Catholics and Protestants weren't getting along so well, and he happened to be the patron of the other side. So he had to come up with a mathematical formula to get out from under the cruelty of what was going on in the middle of the Reformation. And I get that. But here's the problem with causality. We don't have any model that clearly defines why it is that some people— when exposed to a toxin, have a response, and some people do not. We want the world to be very neat and tidy. We want to have a causal model. We want to say that if you get this you know, protein in your system, then you're going to have this reaction. But you know that. That's not the case. You can have somebody with a shellfish allergy, and somebody else can eat shellfish till the cows come home. Somebody right. can have peanuts until forever, and somebody else blows up like a balloon if they have a piece of peanut dust somewhere in the air. Right. Here's the problem. The problem is causality is actually not based on a single model ever. Causality is an interaction between the living system called you or the host and the environment to which you're exposed. And your interaction, in fact, is a causal link at a macro level. But Mm -hmm. to suggest that there is an infectious agent or there is a single thing that costs you that particular next step, which is the, the expression of a disease, that's way, way, way too simple. That defies every piece of data we have in the world. But we're trapped in this dualistic causality system that says this, ergo, that. And, and the world doesn't operate in that way. But it's worse, and I, and I pick on COVID for a very simple reason. The World Health Organization made it very clear in February of 2020 that they were not going to have a medical diagnostic standard for COVID-19. And they did that intentionally. That means that anybody who had four of the 11 approved symptoms had COVID. Now, the problem with these symptoms is it could be as simple as fever, runny nose, cough, dry cough, pain in your lungs, pain on breathing, blah, 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 blah. These were so diffuse 
as to make it laughable even when you allegedly had a diagnosis. And then you have the other problem, which is we never had a diagnostic standard for the presence or absence of a thing. So what we did was we made up this nonsensical PCR determination, which unfortunately could amplify its way into finding anything at all. Right. And then you had this conflation of what allegedly were cases, which were manipulations of laboratory samples to the point of finding anything that was looking for. And on the other hand, people with the sniffles. And so we had this conflation of two standards, neither one of which were a standard. Mm -hmm. Why would you do that? Why wouldn't you have a test for a specific disease like we have in pathology for cancerous cells? Why wouldn't we have an absolute standard? Well, we wouldn't have an absolute standard because the problem is if we did that, we would have found out that there were almost no cases of anything associated with the coronavirus model at all. Right now, and let me make a very abundantly clear point. Now, people are dying of the spike protein associated and assembled from a model of coronavirus. And let's make no mistake about this. The distribution of an injectable form of a scheduled toxin is really killing people. It is really accelerating cancers and it is really causing myocarditis. So when we get to causality and we know that a toxin, which is a scheduled, one of the 64 scheduled toxins, according to the United States government, that toxin is being injected into people. Real people are really suffering and really dying from a thing. And this is where I have found this whole, is there a virus? Is there not a virus? Is there a pathogen? Is there not a pathogen? Kind of, kind of actually nothing but a smokescreen because the reality is that a biological weapon is being injected into the population with the intent to create harm Mm -hmm. so that an industrial mandate can be used to profiteer on the back of that harm and for all kinds of other, I'm sure, nefarious reasons. But the bottom line is simple. Real people are really dying and real people are really getting sick, but they are not getting sick from catching something they're getting sick from having something introduced into their system, largely through hypodermic needles. Yeah. I mean, obviously the, the overlap between germ theory, terrain theory is a conversation we won't be able to have in the next 15 minutes, but I definitely think that it, it's, it, it sounds like you're a very similar stance to me that ultimately, at least what I would say from my position is throughout my research on both of these things, I tend to find myself somewhere in the middle where it almost seems like both sides don't seem to fully grasp the big picture, but ultimately that, you know, like you said, that it's very clear, at least from what I can see, the research and plenty of scientific peer-reviewed studies finding that there, there is a protein that is definitely being used in the delivery system and so on, yeah. and that's making people sick. So my point would be when I throw when I have these conversations, it's like, well, anything living can have protein. So couldn't we say that's a bacteria? Couldn't that be, you know, any number of ways? And, and that's why I think what I try to do with this, and I heard you say this in a previous interview that I thought was really sound. I call it arguing from within their narrative. And I think it's important right. to show that here's what they said at one point, and here's what they're saying now, and that contradicts the previous statement. And I try to show that to the average person to say, look, they're lying. And I'm not saying I believe in either statement. No. And somehow that doesn't sit well with people that think that we're believing in viruses or X, Y, and Z. Yeah, yeah, no, no. And listen, that's exactly the point. I've said many times, my objective throughout this entire last four years has been prosecutorial. Mm -hmm. And you know what I can't do? I can't actually prosecute science in the court. What I can do is I can prosecute lying. I can prosecute racketeering. I can prosecute premeditated murder. I can prosecute the fact 
that we knew that remdesivir killed 53% of the people that it was used in in the Ebola trials in 2018. And I know that that's a fact that every single physician could have had access to in their independent inquiry as to whether they should have used remdesivir or not. And they decided not to, and that's reckless homicide. I can pursue those facts. What I cannot do is I cannot sit there and have a Copernican argument about heliocentricity in the middle of a criminal conversation. And it is, in fact, highly distracting to go down a pathway where what you're trying to do is trying to settle a totally, totally tangential, like Galileo-level conversation in the middle of a crime. You know what we don't need to do? We don't need to debate who owns black powder as a chemical construct when it comes time to dealing with a murder. And if you don't believe that some phosphorus sulfur combination led to the acceleration of a projectile that went through somebody's head and blew their head off, if you don't believe in that concept, I don't give a rip because I've got a dead body with a bullet hole. And this is where I have a fundamental problem with debating allegedly the issues that must be discussed when that's not the relevant conversation. Now, was is there a location and is there a time when it is laudable to examine every single theory that exists and go, hey, do we have a picture of this that's anywhere near right? Because here's the bottom line, as I've said, and I gave a speech at IOMT conference. It's very hard to find, but it's called Of Warps and Weaves. And the question is, do we even understand the idea of living systems as a chemical structure. Because if we go back to the 1860s, we realize that the decision was made to view humans as a chemical process, not a frequency process. Mm. And I'm not saying they are one or the other. I'm saying there's some of both. Right. But the fact that we have separated into a basic biochemistry is as broken. And that's why when I, when I did have conversations with the whole terrain theory folks, the fact of the matter is, they're not going back far enough in the inquiry because what they're doing is going, well, let's get nostalgic and go back to the early 1900s or late 1800s. Well, I'm sorry. We screwed up earlier than that when we came up with a thing called the periodic table. And that's how we describe the universe. We screwed up in the 1950s with what we call DNA. The problem is if we're going to have the philosophical conversations about the structure of science, that's a great conversation to have. And I love having it but not in the middle of a war. Right. And we're in the middle of a war and where we need to go right now is say criminals are getting away with crimes. Exactly. And it's exactly where my mind is at as well. And I, and I, and I know you said pretty much the same thing is that I, I would argue still that it's a valid point and, and people that want to have do that research now have at it. But I think it's, it's almost counterproductive to almost stay, you know, admire these conversations with that point, when, like you're saying, we're just trying to get inform other people that are still even more lost than everybody, you know, and, and use the data in front of us. So I, I'm glad you said that. I think it's very important. Well, let, let's let's finish with the point of origins in general. You made yeah. a statement in regard to you, you obviously before this WHO presentation, everyone's going to be familiar with your work from the earliest parts of this in regard to using their own patents, which does overlap with that, to show that they're lying about this. And so you mentioned yeah. the, how the novel genetic sequence that they're pointing at was actually found in these patents. Could you point to yep. that, uh, discuss that for me? Yeah, well, listen, um, when when the uh, 
the International Committee on the Taxonomy of Viruses, ICTV, um, when when that group got together in February of 2020, they were um, allegedly impaneled to determine whether or not this thing was novel. And the problem with that statement is we still don't have any um, real provenance. And that, that word just in a legal sense means chain of custody. We don't know that the computer sequence that was uploaded, which was, by the way, bounced, according to every report, through at least seven servers. So that gives you absolute confidence that the file that it was uploaded had nothing changed in seven transmission interruptions between China and wherever it ultimately landed up in Europe. But but we're told that that file, which was not a biological sample, let's be really clear, it was a computer code simulation of the reconstruction of what was called a complete sequence. There's zero in that statement that's true. Nothing. There's nothing about that that's reality. That is a model derived from a model that is derived from a statistical probability of a model. So let's get, you know, most people didn't get their doctoral degrees. Most people don't have a degree in statistics. But but when you have three introductions of possible error, you don't have a linear function of error. You have, in this case, a cubic function of error, which means we are off the log scale of stupid at the starting line. But let's set that aside for a moment. What they did, the ICTV, which conveniently, are you ready for this? Had Ralph Barrick on it. <laughs> Can't imagine why. Um, the ICTV made a determination of what novelty was. And there were three principal att- attributes of what they called this novel virus that they said was novel. There were some open reading frames. There were some receptor binding domains. And there were some of the spike protein things that were allegedly novel. And so what we did, and we as my company, MCAM, what we did was we took the declaration of novelty, just that piece, just not the thousands and thousands and thousands of other patents on coronavirus. What we did was we just took the novelty elements and we did an examination of whether or not the novel elements were already patented. And in the case of what was determined by the ICT to be be novel, and by the way, if you type um, coronavirus or COVID-19 or COV2, SARS-CoV-2 and the name MCAM into the search. You can pull this file right off of our website. It's easy to find. But we actually showed where every single one of the alleged unique elements existed in already issued patents. Not kind of maybe there might have been. These were absolutely issued patents at the time the declaration of novelty happened. Now, under patent law, and a lot of people don't know this, Patent law says that an ordinary person skilled in the art could make a combination. Therefore, it's not novel. And here's the problem with the intersection between patent law and what happened in this case. If we know that, let's just say the Urbani strain or some strain of allegedly SARS-CoV-2 or SARS-CoV generally is known. You know, the CDC filed a patent on it in 2003. They got that patent issued in 2007. So let's just say for the sake of argument that that is what SARS-CoV is. Then what you're going to do is you're going to try to say there's something distinct or different from that thing. And then you're going to tell me what the distinction or difference is. If the distinction is already patented, then by legal definition, it cannot be novel because the standard for novelty 
is both novel and non-obvious. And what's non-obvious? That means that a person ordinarily skilled in the art would not think about these things going together, except for the fact that if we have these things going together in existing patents, we now have a legal proof, not a not an allegation. This is a legal proof that there was neither novelty nor non-obviousness, which means that the declaration that every single governor, every single head of state signed that said there is a novel virus creating a novel disease, those individuals all lied because there were neither. There was not a novel anything, and it did not create anything. And we even had to go as far in the spring and summer of 2020 of making up the term asymptomatic spreaders of, are you ready for this? A disease defined by symptoms. How on earth could that even logically be possible in any dimension of reality? And the answer is it can't be. But it was part of the fear porn to make sure people accepted the shot. That's the only reason why it was done. It's the reason why they said they were going to do it. And it's exactly what they ultimately did. See, this is why I appreciate your work so much is that you not only outline it in a very specific way, but you use the legal terms and, and you know, you understand these things and how you can break this down in a way. I mean, obviously, because these are things that you're trying to find accountability for. And so I, I really value that. But I, that, that's a really clear picture of how. And again, to your point to how it's so very clearly obvious, these things are there. You can find right. the patents and it relates to what they're doing. And I guess to end the last point I want to get into, and then I'll let you make you know any finishing comments you'd like, is on this very note, I've always found this very interesting, is that you can show, and this is Moderna's page of their work, which by the way, they now have removed, which I find very interesting. Yeah. Well, you can go all the way back down to the very end. And what you're mentioning there is the idea of when the Chinese authorities shared the genetic sequence of the novel coronavirus on January 11th, I often point out that literally two days later, they'd already finalized their sequence for the, the thing they're still using to this day. And I always play this as well. People on my, on my show will always know this very quickly. I'll play this as the Chinese CDC with MSNBC admitting when they sent that, they hadn't yeah. isolated it. And why has the data not been shared? No, they didn't isolate as a virus. That's the issue. People go on to argue that they did after that, right? My point is simply that they stated on the record when they sent this that they hadn't. But now what we're ultimately finding out and we're discussing is that it wasn't ultimately isolated. And what I, I want your, your opinion on is this is, a, this is an article that, or a show that I recently covered in regard to finding, and this is a J Japanese study, yep. lab-created Nipah clones as well as influenza clones, both of which they argue were being worked on at Wuhan in the yep. original samples. So could yep. you talk about why that means it's not isolated by definition, but also what that means in a bigger picture from your perspective? Well, yeah, and, and this is probably a great place to, to put a pin in some next conversation. There are an enormous number of pathogens that are, um, that are in production right now um, NEPA is a one that's getting air cover because of what's allegedly happening in India. We're all supposed to be very, very worried about it. I'm not. And I'm not worried about it because it's the same nonsense that COVID has been. It's the same nonsense that that, you know, anthrax was and everything else. Mm -hmm. This is a controlled, once again, psyop where we're going to use a couple allegedly targeted ill people and we're going to turn it into a story that's going to allegedly try to shut down the world. But but. What we really need to do is we really need to go and look at the fact that beginning in the early 2000s, the United States government took a very active role in trying to understand the state of technology readiness level 
of a number of pathogens. At the time, we had 64 scheduled pathogens. Out of those, about half of them were actively in consideration as biological weapon agents or agents of mass population control. And so this has been going on for the last 20 years formally. And the tragedy for me was that as a person asked by at the time, the Bush administration to go to places like Slovenia and Iran and India and South Africa and all these places where I went as a biological weapons observer and as a technology readiness level observer for the U.S. government, I got to see a number of things that actually would make your skin crawl, like stuff that we should never have anywhere on this planet where we're amplifying things that were everything from how to take an innocent shellfish out of the waters of the Philippines and make it a lethal assassination agent with the conotoxin amplification. Um, If you look at all these, what we're doing is we're taking protein sequences that we know have bioreactivity in the human body. And we're trying to figure out every way we can to manipulate them. And the fact of the matter is, if we really inform the public about how egregious these violations are, we would have the right conversation about changing laws so our biological and chemical weapons laws actually had teeth in them. Because while 18 U.S. Code gives us a very clear section, and for those of you who want to geek out, 18 U.S. Code Section 178, which is the place to go to understand what we call biological weapons and what we're supposed to be doing to outlaw them, um, we should be having a public dialogue, and it should be something that rises to the level of legislation. We should not allow the National Institutes of Health or the Department of Defense to allocate funding to amplify these agents so that allegedly we can study them in the case that they fall into the hands of bad people. Because the evidence has shown us that the bad people who actually have unleashed these pathogens since 1991, and by the way, if you go to the miscellaneous Memorandum 7 and other documents, we can go back to the 1950s. The bad people who unleash these things on the population are us. It is the U.S. who's doing it. And we need to actually have a public conversation that makes it abundantly clear that we, the people, will not tolerate the ongoing manipulation of allegedly biochemical science for a weaponization of nature against humanity. And that conversation is the one we should be having. And we should have all of our elected officials having that conversation. And to date, there's been cricket silence. Well, I'm glad we're having this conversation and I'm glad that it's reaching people. And I really do believe that it is. And I think your work is making leaps and bounds and getting average people to understand this. So I really thank you for your work and and the time for today. I know you're busy. I mean, I'm I'm honored and I'm so grateful that you persisted in reaching out. Thank you for doing that. It's an honor to meet you. And I look forward to other conversations. Yeah, same here. And I'm I'm looking forward to connecting again. So thank you for for tuning in today. and, And as always, everybody out there, question everything. Come to your own conclusions. Stay vigilant.